Visceral, 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 Visceral Podcast, African Women Innovate. Welcome to Visceral Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Roseboro. Today's interview is with Dr. Jane Allwatch, who is the former managing director of Earth Observation at the South African National Space Agency. She's a climate change impact specialist and a specialist in satellite imagery. We speak extensively about the perspective of climate change in Africa and how and when climate change will be prioritized among the number of development issues on the African continent. We know actually that our communities have information that can help us to understand better climate change. They have seen some crops not appearing. They have seen some plants. We need to close that gap. Dr. Allwatch has a fascinating personal story to tell and is an inspiration to young women with interest in fighting climate change. Dr. Allwatch was incredibly generous with her time and I was lucky to have her attention. I hope you enjoy the interview. Visceral Podcast, African Women Innovate. I'm really excited to speak with you. I really am. And and the point of these inter- interviews is to get to know more about you. And I'd love to hear about your early interests and, and how you recognized your passion for, for the environment. So if you can tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from originally, your early background information, and what was the catalyst for this professional career in climate change? I think my passion was really driven by my early life. Um, I am a Rwandan descent. My parents are are from Rwanda. I'm also from Rwanda, but they left Rwanda in 1959 as refugees and they went to Uganda. So I was born in Uganda. And we were living in this refugee camp. And as time went on, I would see that our livelihood was based on cattle keeping. Mm. And of course, milk was the order of the day. I can tell you, we never drank water. It was actually like a sin to be seen drinking water. Okay. <laughs> but then uh, what intrigued me the most was the fact that we used to get a lot of ticks. Okay. And Uganda also is a warm and rainy season. Mm. And we also had a lot of malaria when we were growing up. Then, of course, as, as a young kid, you, you, you're so inquisitive. You want to know. Then I started noticing that we'd get a lot of ticks in some seasons. Yeah. And we'd also be getting a lot of malaria in some seasons. Yeah. Then I started now understanding how the climate actually impacts on our livelihoods. Yeah. But also on the fact that it impacted on the amount we get diseases, particularly malaria. Then that kind of started an interest in the connectivity of people and the weather and the livelihoods. So literally even now what I do, I find that interconnection extremely exciting. It's extremely exciting. And of course, climate change now has made it even better. So when my, um, I finished high school, 
I went to the university, I was still doing like biology and interested in, in takes and ants and the organization of ants also. It really interested me. And I remember one time I was telling my father, come I tell you something. And I was teaching about these ants, the organization in ants, and this is the queen, and this is the king, and this other what. And he's like, oh, where are you getting these things from? <laughs> and then I, re I also that time I realized that it's actually, we are not the only clever people. These small organisms are as organized as we are. So at that stage, then my concern was how the environment affects us. Then when I went to university and I started reading about climate change, then my fascination even grew because now I realized that we as human beings are now starting to affect the climate system. So once again, you can see now this fascination of relationships and interconnection and dependencies of nature and people and, and places. Because wherever we, we went, you found it's just the similar stuff, right? So this again, seriously took me to the environmental side of things. Because when I studied biology, and zoology, it was more on the animals, right? It was more on the organisms, but very little on the botany part of it and the atmosphere and the places. So environmental science really put everything together. Did you think it was like a risk to kind of enter into into these fields? Risk? Did you? Never, 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 because. I compare myself now with like the young people. I felt at my age, I was driven more by interest. I didn't think about job. Right. I just studied these subjects because <laughs> I thought they were so fascinating. Because when I speak to my children, I see they are more organized. They know what they want to do. This will lead me to this. I didn't know that. <laughs> I just like, like I don't know what this is gonna. I just do. like the <laughs> subjects, and they really fascinated me, and that is how I entered into climate change, and of course, the impacts, as as you know, and others know, is not only about um, landscape. When we started studying climate change, it was more on the vegetation mm. and on the water and on the biological diversity, but now, the impacts, even the adaptation, is on socio-economic. And that is so important for us. Again, people, livelihoods, and economy. Absolutely. Well, did you have any specific role models or mentors that kind of, I mean, it seems as if you were personally kind of, you had your own kind of self-motivation. So I'm wondering, did you need to, at any stage, rely on any kind of role models or mentors to get you through certain stages? So when I was growing up, we, we didn't even hear much about role models and that mentors. You, your teacher was your mentor. Your parents, without mentioning it, your mentors, you just looked at what they do. And, and if I can tell you those days, and even I think in the area I was in, there were, there were no these wrong talks between parents and children. Somehow you just know by watching them. So I cannot really tell you that I had this mentor that I looked out to because we didn't think like that, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And the term role model didn't exist at the time. So really, no, I think 
the subject, the people I associated myself with, my parents. Right. And your own self And just more my own yeah. self-motivation. Yeah, just to, to want to do things to completion. Right. Yeah, but so I think something very important is that although my parents were refugees, mm. they were so interested and they made sure we went to school. So school was extremely important. You didn't want to fail. It's, it levels the playing field in yes. a sense. In some way they knew that was going to level the playing field That's for it. you. Yes. And I think that were the motivation I had to actually push on and, and move on. <laughs> so you're going to be leaving Sansa soon. Yes. <laughs> There's some very, very <laughs> upset people here. Um, but to take on another leadership role, which we'll get into a little bit later, but as your role as the managing director of Earth Observation, let's say a lot of leaders are, you know, really wanting to leave a legacy. You know, yes. that seems to always be, you know, something that, that leaders want to leave. But what's the work that you're most proud of here at Sansa? This, this job has been the most enriching job, to be honest, that... I have ever been exposed to. Firstly, when I was appointed, I was appointed to start the Earth Observation Division. So you can imagine, there were about five people that had come from another division and we started everything. The organogram, the later heads. Ground zero. <laughs> the HR departments, the finance departments, and, and, and you, you, you think everything just comes so, I thought that everything actually would just come out smoothly, but no, even just agreeing on the organogram, even just agreeing on the letterhead, mm. on how we are going to have a letterhead. So the growing this division is so important. Then, apart from the growing of the division, first of all, the reason for for it to, to form is that when Sansa was formed, it was formed um, on some institutions that were already doing space work. Okay. And one of them was CSIR, Satellite Application Center, they call it SAC. Mm -hmm. And the other one was um, Magnetic Observatory in Hermanus. Mm -hmm. So those two were incorporated into, in, into Sansa. And then the SAC was divided into two. The operations people that run our antennas and the Earth Observation. Mm -hmm. And they say the Earth Observation, you have to be near stakeholders. So our operations is a little bit far in, in a remote place. Okay. So my first role, apart from the organogram and the later haze and the HR, was to move the Earth Observation to Pretoria. <laughs> that was hard. <laughs> I remember the day we moved I came here so early in the morning and I sat and I'm like, what if they don't show up? Because the little group that we had at the time mm. had already got used to working with people in space operations. Mm. They had friends, the history, mm. and you know, changes always. So I sat here early in the morning and I don't tell myself. But then when they showed up, I was like, this is it. So, but then the, 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 
the trajectory to grow really so fast. We increase the number of sensors. Sensors, I mean something like the landscape data and spot data. Now we have CBERS 4. And we went into various applications that were not there before the human settlement layers, the water body layers, the disaster. But more importantly, we moved into international partnerships. Currently, as I was speaking now, I've been the chair of uh, the COS Working Group on Capacity Building and Data Democracy. COS is the Committee on Earth Observation Satellites. So all important satellite agencies are there, NASA, ESA, JAXA. So to be there alone was so humbling to me because the support that a small space agency like SANSA gets from NASA and ESA, it's so overwhelming. So I can't tell you so many things, but what I think would be my best um, biggest that I have left, I'm going to leave, is staff development. Despite the fact that we do not have a big budget, right? but every year we made sure that at least five staff members have a bursary to improve their skill. Managers have gone for MBAs, they've gone for MDPs, others are doing PhDs, others are doing Masters. So that for me is something I can be more proud than everything else. Because it's important that we give out if you have the chance to be in, in a management position. Absolutely. Yeah. So, on a yes, I mean, I think that that's really important. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to actually say that, so... <laughs> Yeah, that is so important. Yeah, it's, it's so incredibly important. Yeah, it's so important. Investing in yeah. your staff and making sure that they're able to reach their their full potential is yeah. something that not every organization, not every leader, even prioritizes. And we don't have a big budget, right? But it's just the recognition that if you do not have these high skilled staff, where will your product come from? (laughs) And this is a very highly technology intensive. Very technical. So you have to keep on being on top of things. All the time. Yes, so you need staff to do it. All the time. And just on that technical note, on that, I mean, the stuff that you guys do is just a little mind-blowing, but you are a climate change impact specialist. Yes. And much of what I've read about you, what bring, what usually bring, <laughs> comes up, is satellite imagery. Mm. So that appears in your bio quite often. Mm. Um, so I'm assuming that's part of your specialization as well. So tell us, our listeners are non are are non specialists. Yeah, yeah. You know, they uh, they're non technical people, but. You know, they may be interested in the sciences and Mm. this could, you know, influence what they Mm. choose to to be interested in or read about more. And also for my own selfish reasons, I I also want to know what what is a climate change impact specialist? Yeah. And and also in terms of like the satellite imagery, you know, how useful is this type of technology? You know, what is it supposed to inform research, policy, what... In what ways does it contribute to reducing, say, the negative impact on the environment? Okay, so you correctly have seen that um, I write like a climate change impact specialist. First of all, um, many climate change scientists or specialists that we know and are, we do not have like a climate change degree. Right, right. But we have 
zoology, we have botany, we have geology, we have water resource management, and you have done a climate change focus at your PhD. And some climate change um, scientists are doing climate change science. Mm. And that science means um, things to do with the relationship between carbon dioxide and temperature. Others are looking at uh, temperature increase, rainfall increase. Other climate change scientists are doing mitigation. How can we reduce greenhouse gases? Mm -hmm. other, other climate change scientists are doing adaptation. As we are doing the impacts of climate change on vector-borne diseases, that's what I did, on water resource management, on agriculture. So it's just to focus more on what you studied at your PhD. Okay. But of course, you do general climate change, then you focus on either adaptation or impacts or mitigation or science. So you get more specific yes. depending on what you... more specific. Now, what was my interest, first of all, in Sansa? Because mm. when I was at the University of Pretoria, mm -hmm. one of the hardest things students could get to do research was satellite image. Why was it so hard? It was so hard. That time, the only source was SAC. I spoke about yes. CSR, Satellite yeah. Application Center, yeah. and they would give us only one image. <laughs> one image, and they're like, that's all we can give students. Apart from, of course, trying to download the free data sets like Landsat, but that time, universities were not even having good network right. for you to be able to actually download as much. And now it's like very it. interactive and now. now on, you can see I was able to thanks. access some of the stuff on, on, online. I'm like, so you can do it. so much now. So then when Sansa was formed, like, mm, South Africa now has a space agency. And when this job came about, and it's like head of us observation, I'm like, I'm going to distribute all these images as much as I can. Yeah. And that's what we did. <laughs> we distribute these images. Interestingly, satellite images have played such a huge role in understanding climate change. Because mm. when you're studying at universities or even school and you want to say the melting of the ice cap, the raising of the sea level, the glaciers on Mount Kilimanjaro and others, satellite images are the best. So literally, they have given us so much understanding on the extent of the evidence of climate change. And without that, we would not even have been so interested and taken it very seriously. Right, right. So without knowing the impacts, the extent of climate change, how can you respond to it? And that's where the Im satellite images are coming from. Currently, which is very exciting, mm -hmm. is that we have now NASA Oh, of course, uh, I think even ESA and JAXA, they have now carbon dioxide monitoring satellites. So they're literally measuring carbon dioxide daily at a global scale. You can imagine one of the biggest things that we have in Africa is to measure our annual carbon dioxide emissions. But now we have satellite actually measuring. They might not be 100% accurate, but it's such a good base to use, Absolutely. then we can superimpose other methods. Absolutely. So that's where it's going. It's so amazing. Right. And as technology advances, <laughs> I mean, you're going to yes. get, you'll be able to do more Even and more. Even more. Yes. And the good thing is that most of those data sets are actually free. Right. Right. Yes. Right. And also allowing students 
that access Thank to you. that type of technology Thank in you. terms of how they're thinking and coming up with new ways of, yeah. to solve problems. I think it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> technology is something so it, else. It's so good. Like when I, I sit in CEOs and the developed countries presents all these new missions yeah. coming up, mm -hmm. I'm telling myself, wow, yeah. how fortunate the young people are these days in universities to actually monitor the environment so quickly. If I can tell you now, one of the commercial satellites data we have is support is from France. Mm -hmm. We can see every part of South Africa twice a year. And that's not even better. There are others that have we can see anyway every day if we wanted to, if we found the resources. Those days can you imagine going to the field <laughs> to measure vegetation? How 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 how, people, how did you do it? You know, <laughs> we, we throw a quadrat, and then you follow this quadrat and count it. it it's so tasky. it was just a guess, more or less. <laughs> so the scientists get those images and they process them using remote sensing techniques. And in a minute, you know where there is water, where there is vegetation, where there is what. And that information is needed for but planning. Just and, and just to piggyback on mm. that a little bit, because because then I start to think about you know development issues around that and and the challenges of conveying that type of technical information to people that you know are non-technical around these kinds of. There there may be farmers, but they may not know about all of these very specific things related to climate change mm. and 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 the issues that are incredibly important in mm. terms of determining whether or not they're going to have a successful crop or exactly. not. So, yeah. yeah, you know, and also when it comes to, you know, aspects of environmental justice mm. and, mm. you know, how it affects, you know, specific communities and specific groups of people. And, you know, I'm wondering, does this information, the yeah. satellite imagery, can that be useful yeah. for 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 those type of communities that have been severely impacted by by yeah. climate change? You know that that is like the next challenge I think for all of us, and it has been a challenge for quite some time because we've got all these data sets, we've got we've written books in IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, every five years there is. Report one, now people think about preparing report six. It gives you the science, it gives you the adaptation, the impacts, everything. But, and yet we know and we write in those reports that most of these impacts are in the vulnerable communities, in the rural areas. So, can I tell you that all this information has reached there? No, <laughs> no. it hasn't yet. It hasn't yet. And how and, and it's such okay. a gap. Yeah. Because another thing is that we know actually that our communities have information that can help us right. to understand better climate change. Right. They have seen some crops not appearing. Right. They have seen some plants. It's almost working together in a sense so in order to we need to close that gap yeah. and make sure that we do not only, first of all, focus on scientific publication. We're going to popular place. We write um, newsletters and we do presentation. I personally find that if I have a chance to make a presentation at a conference and they have invited 
municipal, then I know I've made an impact. Absolutely. Because they have not read any publication that I have done. <laughs> so we haven't. And you have to communicate it in a certain to way. Communicate. But I guess I'm also wondering around mm. this environmental justice. And I, and yeah. I, for me, I think I need to do more reading around what it, what is that supposed to look like? And, mm. and when you are in um, a community where, you know, climate change has affected you in the most negative way, the mm. most disastrous way, you know, what... What then does yeah. environmental justice supposed to look like? Yeah. What does you. it look like? You know, what is it supposed to look like? Mm. <sighs> Ideally, in my opinion, any climate change program should have that environmental justice incorporated and actually funded. We must be able to fund or to get funding for adaptation strategies for those communities. We should be able to have awareness activities and advise them. Some of the work that we are doing now in SANSA using satellite imagery and fuel data is to look at what we call grazing capacities. Mm-hmm. We have very many farmers in rural areas, subsistence farmers. Mm-hmm. Those are keeping cattle. But the grazing capacity has lowered so much. That is, how many cattle can your piece of land be able to sustain because of climate change and overgrazing? So that grazing capacity has reduced. And we see that there is more capacity to keep sheep and goats. So that is the information we have to go and tell them. Instead of doing the cows, let's look at the other types of things to her. Mm. Mm. And we need to translate all these signs into messages like that. And say, unfortunately, the environment has changed. You can no longer keep cattle anymore. But you know what? Why not? Let us think about keeping goats or keeping sheep. So that, that for me would be... The environmental adjust, and it is now an adaptation measure. Right. Because you have to change the way we've been living. Right, right. Because of climate change. You have to survive climate change. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope we survive climate change. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, you, you can't talk to me, and I can talk to other scientists. We all know we're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. But one reason why I'm attracted to this new job, even before you speak about mm-hmm. it, is because despite that, I've been here enjoying all the images and distributing them, but my passion is on application of these images, and climate change is one of them. So where I'm going is called the Southern Africa Climate Change Service Center, and it focuses on climate change services. And I hope that what we are talking about right now is gonna be our key deliverable. To see how do we translate this data into services to our communities in Sadak? Absolutely. You've been based in South Africa, but I'm assuming that you're also familiar with, say, climate change policies, legislation, you know, approaches that other countries yes. on the continent are implementing. So I'm wondering when people are thinking about climate change here in Africa. What what did they associate it with? You know, it, it's like, yeah. you know, how do they apply it in their own context? And, and is this idea of climate change different than, say, like the Western version or this global perspective? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you want to understand what do people actually think about yeah. climate change? 
Um, I think I can answer it like you know differently. Yes, of course, to recognize that the understanding and appreciating of climate change is still into science. A small group of scientists in the African continent, us, who keep on going for all the conferences and all the meetings, <laughs> keep on being invited, and then we have tried over the years. And also, the global community has tried to talk to policymakers. So those could be the most important um, groups. So, how do we perceive many people? If you can't talk to them, they'll say, "Why should we be suffering from America's problem?" Yeah, good question. <laughs> How do you respond? Why why should we even be putting climate on the agenda of my poor country? Which and they all know policymakers in Africa. They know Africa has not contributed directly to these greenhouse gases. So why are you telling us about this? But the answer to that is that if if you haven't caused it, it's affecting you even more than the people that have caused it. But also, by the way, Africa is not innocent. Because if you look at the emissions coming from the African continent, the biggest portion is from land use and land government. So we are not having emissions from fossil fuels, comparable, but we are also doing our own bit. So for me, I, I, I propose to everyone, everybody must play their part. No matter how small, but you must play your part. Maybe we should argue America to play the bigger portion and get funds for adaptation funds. And really, but everybody has a responsibility. Another reason why we shouldn't be thinking about that in Africa is that Africa is is developing. If you go to some of these African countries, sometimes I have a chance to go to Uganda and to Rwanda. And I tell you the number of cars in town right. and, and the motorbikes and, and the growth. So which means if we don't think very carefully, yeah. the emissions are just going to increase right. even beyond our own expectations. So we need to to move up. Right. Yeah. And and you know my my other question was around like this kind of endless list of, you know, development and social issues and economic yeah. issues that that countries are having to prioritize because that's what's important yeah. right now. Yeah, you wonder if, if climate change is one of those top priorities for certain countries. But personally, how would you, you know, you just did it briefly, but how would you explain the interconnectedness of, say, climate change mm-hmm. on these other development issues? Mm-hmm. How would you explain that? I've, I've had this... Um this kind of um, thinking before and it is correct you're like I have to tackle poverty that's any African country I have to tackle roads I have to tackle education I have to why should I make climate change a priority but actually we know that if you don't tackle climate change poverty will increase the water resources issues will increase so climate change should be tackled at the same time as we are tackling whatever we think our priority is. When I was still into deep ecology and lecturing at the University of Pretoria, 
So that's a very interesting area that I would really want to read more about, is to say that, um, just to describe it more generally, to say that the economies we have now are actually based on a lie. Let's say mining. Okay. When we say South Africa gets this much money from mining activities, mm. have we deducted the impact of mining on vegetation? Right on water resources, right. on pollution, right. and people's health. Mm. So if you can deduct all this from this big figure, you could right. actually realize mining is not as profitable exactly. as we made it to be. Exactly. And what are the other yes. alternatives, or have you even looked yeah. at the other alternatives yeah. for it? So actually we could all be living a lie in terms of economy because we ignore... More jobs, you know, you're more jobs than mining. So, you know, if you weigh it up, you get more jobs. Yeah, but individually, people yes. are getting poorer because yes. they're going to hospital because of pollution. We, we are running, we, we are spending more mm. on the environmental impact of mining and even agriculture and other things. So are we really rich as much as we are? I don't think so. Same thing as climate change. Mm. We can pour a lot of money on, let's say, poverty. Let's say we say, let us do another agriculture, an area we've cut trees and we put agriculture. But we cannot sort out the rainfall. We cannot say temperature be suitable. <laughs> so we must prioritize climate change as much as we are prioritizing other issues. There is this example that I was reading about um, some women in, in West Africa. Currently, they are spending about five hours to fetch water because the wells have dried up. So they go in the morning, five hours going, five hours coming back. That these women have children to look after. That's an entire day's work. They're not even cooking. They can't mm. cook anymore. Children are malnutrited. The children cannot go to school anymore. She doesn't have to do their homework. So now this is one localized impact that is affecting the whole generation. Mm. Exactly. So shouldn't we prioritize climate change? We have to. And when you put so it connected. down, when you put it in those simple terms, it's it's <laughs> one of those things where you're like, well, obviously, but then, you know, how do you yes. convince yes. policymakers or government agencies or institutions or research institutions to make sure that those kinds of things are, yeah. like you said, tackled yeah. in addition to say the yeah. other development issues? So, it's yeah, a it's tough. It's a huge challenge, and I guess mm. you know I'm. You know, from your own experience, then, what would need to be done to almost raise the environmental consciousness mm. um, on the African continent so that people do consider alternatives? They yeah. think around, you know, climate change issues and how it may affect, mm. you know, other things, the other implications of climate change. Mm. You know, what needs to be done to raise that environmental consciousness? Another issue that complicates responding to climate change mm. effectively is that um, our politicians, they have like five years to do the best they can, otherwise they will not have been successful. And they have to do activities that will bring so much impact and people can see they have done the job. So what can we do? What we can do firstly is that Climate change programs must not be, how can I call it? They should not follow these political terms 
you have to make a national program. It doesn't matter who is the president, who is the minister of environment, it has to run for years. The budget has to come. So we have to try and detach climate change response from political terms so that it doesn't stop. Then secondly, awareness, awareness, awareness. <laughs> we are so unlucky because even me as I speak, how many, how much of the information I know I've mm -hmm. translated or tried to translate into right. languages that mm -hmm. actually communities understand. Mm -hmm. No, I haven't. Maybe that's where the next generation of climate change response should go. Let's translate everything we know mm -hmm. into, into languages. Because I can tell you, the science is sound. And it's not going to change right. in a day. That this information has to go until the communities and we make real programs. I mean, if we can make um, big meetings for other things, why can't we have community climate change meetings once in some time and we tell people? Because even when we finish IPCC reports, mm. I was fortunate one time to be part of the IPCC number five. But how many of us have gone to the communities? So scientists have a big challenge. First have a challenge and a responsibility. And a responsibility. <laughs> because even that's what we say. We say it's not only enough to do the paper and the right. science. You need to communicate these findings. Mm. So we need to reach out. Absolutely. To reach out properly because we're not the only ones who wants to live and, and be happy. Those communities also want actually to live and be happy. Mm. And here in town, we cannot do much. Mm. So I believe that we have not given enough information to the communities and we have not obtained their own stories because they have stories on how climate change has actually impacted on them, which can enrich the science. Some little work has been done here and there, but yeah. every community is as important as the other community. Absolutely. So it's such a big task. I wish I can only do something about it. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Mm. Next position. I'm looking for funding to just roll out community climate change awareness programs. Absolutely. I think, yeah. yeah. Just like they have those kinds of campaigns for, say, health and HIV AIDS or TB. You. or You know, it should be the same thing. It's just prioritizing climate yeah. change as we do AIDS. Right. Little by little. Yeah. It's just, I mean, you don't have to start with this massive amount no. of money, but little by little so yeah. that you know, word spreads yeah. in a more effective way. And, you know, I always think we can learn more mm. from those communities. Absolutely. Yes. Because they're there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're, they're actually there. They have seen the streams disappearing. They have seen some flowers coming later mm. and others not coming at all. Right. And that information, we, we don't have it yet. Mm. Yes, my next job. <laughs> <laughs> so many things we have to do. I have to do these things. <laughs> Whenever we get into, say, topics of specialization in, in any kind of STEM discipline, yeah. women are scarcely yeah. represented. And also with topics around climate change, which, you know, they're so topical, they're incredibly relevant, especially at this, this moment in time. I would expect maybe like a growing interest, particularly for women. Maybe maybe I'm somewhat delusional around that thinking, but 
I'd like to think that there is a growing population of young women echo warriors, <laughs> you know, climate change Coaches, activists, activists and scientists, yeah. you know. But, you know, is that the case? Are you seeing that there's this growing interest? Are you seeing that there's a growing number of women interested in, say, environmental sciences, the climate change at, as a profession? I think there is some improvement. Okay. But it's not what we should be expecting. And this, of course, okay, first of all, I need to tell you that when I was still lecturing, mm -hmm. the majority of the students were women. There's so much interest. At, and this was at the University of at Pretoria? At the University of Pretoria. Wow, okay. There's so much interest and they grasp the subject so quickly of right. environmental science and they actually want to communicate it and go to communities and talk about it. That is undeniable. What happens to them afterwards is always a big thing. What is happening? What's happening? <laughs> we become women. The responsibilities of family and children and community take over. And many of them are lost on the way to becoming these high-level experts right. that you can hear on conferences right. and meetings. So it sees compromising things. It is yeah. still a challenge for women to really climb this ladder. So the opportunities you would say are there, however, based on how we're socialized, yeah. obviously, as women and yeah. the different responsibilities, it kind of keeps us from making certain decisions that would impact our career, allow yeah. us to grow in our careers. It does, because I would see that as soon as several of them have finished their honors, mm -hmm. they get a job and they get married and they have children and they disappear. But I'm thinking as time goes by, I think things are actually changing, but they have to be serious support systems in the institutions. Right. When I was again at University of Pretoria, we had started um, a mentorship group to say that all the young lecturers that are pursuing their PhD should be supported so that we don't lose them. Absolutely. And we lose them first to take up PhDs and complete because when you are a young lecturer in these universities, you're literally doing all the teaching. Yeah. And women like teaching. Yeah. So we like teaching, we teach, we teach, we forget to do research. And when you forget to do research in university, you don't get promoted. Yeah, you become irrelevant. So that's it. And you are you don't hear anything about you ever again. <laughs> Your level is determined. Right. You cannot grow any further. So he has started saying, when you get these young moms that are doing their PhD, mm. we must provide fund for them to go on sabbatical and finish their PhD. And we hire a temporary lecturer to stand in for them. Absolutely. I think it's happening. Yeah. But we need those serious support structures because women have interests. Mm. They like environmental science. It's like more, it's because of the, I think the connections and the feeling of the environment, it, it's more women. Yeah, it, it, it's caring. So they tend to like the subject, mm -hmm. but they need support. But and of course, in the African countries, it's still a man's world. Still Whether a man's like world in the or, West I as well. Even <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's, it that's, has not changed anywhere. 
even me i can tell you you, you struggle uh -huh. you struggle you 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 have interesting ideas right. but they never go out right and it's that mm. that tension where oh yes I, i must i must kind of function in th as this woman mother you know yeah. sister community mm. person but then i really want to say start a business or i really want to yeah. do this kind of research and you know where am i going to find the money how am i going to yeah. take the time to like write these and grants you get and more don't do it exactly right do it. right why so where's the encouragement yeah. why should you do yeah. it you already fine yeah yeah and even when you go into like the work i mean it's you you struggle you have to fight your way yeah but i when, tell you if only women be given chance to lead more institutions mm -hmm. the world would be a better place i totally believe that yeah and when you just mentioned you have to fight your way how yeah. did you fight your way you how did you fight back. you don't first of all you must be qualified right so they do not not pick you because of your qualifications <laughs> that's one thing and while you're there you must advance your ideas because it's tough still tough for a woman to advance idea and people actually accept it right. you'll find everybody say no 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 it actually won't work it won't right. work but then you have to keep on right. demonstrating that it's actually going to work mm. yeah. so you need to have a lot of confidence Being you need bold. to trust yourself mm. you need to be bold mm -hmm. and it's not easy but through history you remember that that you remember sometimes like in a conference you wanted to say something but you didn't say it then another person said it that is the best idea of the day so when you have those things you reach a point you're like you know what my ideas are actually excellent. right so and look i think for some women <laughs> you know it's <laughs> yeah i think it's really hard for it's women in the hard. sciences I think it's really really hard it's very hard it's actually we don't talk about it yeah but it's tough and also because in most cases the whole of senior management is actually men maybe only two women right and, right and that well that happens it happens yeah. and then you know when you want to advance your own oh, idea they'll just shut you, you down yeah they'll shut <laughs> you down or you have to you really really have to fight for it yes you put in so much energy yeah. like extra energy right um is this the uh, one time i had something on on the radio and we our ceo just left we have a new ceo and he was such a good man because we would fight but then he was very smart and I would now tell him something sensible and would actually accept it <laughs> and then one time i said i have to tell you this then he's like what so i'm like i was listening to this and it says that actually when you hire a man and he knows 50% of the work and you hire a woman who knows 95% of the work the man with his 50% will spend his whole time celebrating the 50% he knows and the woman will spend all her time crying over the 5% she doesn't know this is what it is it's like how do we yes how do we turn this thing and celebrate yeah, everything we know exactly how do we train our brains yes. to think differently That's about it. ourselves and what we can accomplish and what we can contribute yeah um and yeah yeah like the mediocrity around yeah. men is vast you know yeah 
So, <laughs> but we, we, we are so we need to train ourselves. Absolutely, when the opportunities are there, it's hard, mm. but we need to train ourselves to not accept what people are telling you that you are, right? Because yeah. internally, you know, you know what you are, you know what you can do. So, again, I think the responsibility is more on women to step up, right? Mm-hmm. But we need support structures. Very true. To, to take us further. So look, for some women that are in the STEM disciplines, the opportunity, like we just discussed, to occupy, say, a leadership position mm. is rare. Yes. You know, sometimes it comes later in your career or or, or at all, you know, if, if at all, mm. rather. Mm. So soon you'll be taking up a position <laughs> As the executive director of Southern African Science Service Center for Climate Change and Adaptive Land Management. Mm. That is a very long (laughs) title for an organization. That's a sentence. It is a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll be taking up this position in Namibia. Yes. But the mission of the organization is to establish this network of science service centers across the Southern African region Mm. to you know, strength and capacity, strength yes. and capacity to, you know, to cope with climate, um, with climate change and land use, and also to generate more and relevant research and information. Mm. And all of this is to really inform policy. Yeah. So as you move into this new position, you know, what are some of your specific goals for the year? I'm sure you've asked, mm. you know, in the whole conversations with the organization, I'm sure they've asked you what your vision is and all these kinds of things. And, you know, but what are some of the goals, practical things that you're wanting to to accomplish as you occupy this position? Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about that. Even when, when, when I went for, for the interview, I was asked about that. And looking at my knowledge in climate change, I think the most important goal for me is firstly to produce relevant services to different nations because different countries have got different priorities. Absolutely. So we need to understand that the national needs mm-hmm. and we need to move away from data and data and data to information that they'll actually use to make better decisions relevant, relevant, relevant. And these products and services must not only stay to the central areas. I would want to go to the communities. Most of the things we spoke about before, Mm -hmm. I think I would want to reach the communities because for any institution to be sustainable, you must prove your relevance. Mm -hmm. Every single member of a district would see your footprint and say, we are using this information from SASCA and it has helped us to understand climate change better and we can adapt now because of this information. I, I have been in institution with a lot of data and science. <laughs> I, I, I want to go into information that is relevant. Exactly. Yeah, that everybody would talk about. Right. And also spoke about getting every publications we have and we actually summarize it mm. into information that is short and simple relevant. and simple yes. to understand to understand yes. yeah and of course one of the other objectives is is thing for us to try and grow sasco to other countries because right. Yeah. right now it covers botswana oh. namibia angola, angola south africa, south africa. 
and Botswana. Botswana. Mm. But again, it's relevant climate services and information. And I think it has come at the right time right. for me, where I'm growing older and I know the SARS is safe, the impacts are known, right. but there is a gap. Right. And we cannot manage adaptation if every single person, mm. many communities are not on board. Because what are they adapting to? Right. And with what? Right. What's so no information? It's, how it's are this information do that? that is relevant so that every person can see SASCO's footprint. Absolutely. Because as we said before, if we don't tackle climate change, we fail to tackle poverty. And that is important for me. So look, I think that, I mean, speaking to you has been really interesting. I'm so glad that I was able to talk to you. I think your story is incredibly interesting and just like your view on things. And I love speaking to scientists and I think it's just like the geek side of me, you know, yeah. I'm always like in school learning something, but it's, I love speaking to really smart women and and just getting their views around how they manage and do you to enter their heads. I'm just to get a little bit secretly. I'm just pulling information from. Her. But, but I am so excited, and I really want to make a, a, a tangible contribution absolutely. to understanding and adapting to climate change absolutely. in Africa. Yes, and it's, as I say, I think it is the right time, is the right stage for me. Thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. A big thank you again to Dr. Jane Allwatch for being such a great guest. Since this interview, Dr. Allwatch has moved to a new position as Executive Director of Southern African Science Service Center for Climate Change and Adaptive Land Management in Namibia. We wish her all the best. For more information from Dr. Allwatch's interview, take a look at our show notes. Visit www.visceralpodcast.co.za. Click on the episode and you'll be directed to the show notes. You can also access Visceral Podcast through iTunes. We love feedback, so send us your comments. Send us your suggestions. Even better, rate us on iTunes. And while you're at it, subscribe to Visceral Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Michelle Roseborough, and this is Visceral Podcast. Visceral Podcast.